Uh, this morning we are working our way through two essential doctrines. Uh, and I, I put them on the top of your handout in both a chart form and uh, in the summary from our doctrinal statement. Those two doctrines being doctrines of salvation, how we understand what it means to be saved and truth we know about our salvation. The first, security, or often called eternal security. The security of salvation is accomplished by God. How secure is your salvation? Your salvation is secure completely because of God. So when we speak of security of salvation, uh, we mean all of the redeemed are kept eternally secure in Christ by the power of God. So when we speak of eternal security, as we will briefly this morning, uh, we're speaking of the reality that salvation is a work of God and its maintenance and continuance and progress and final end continues to be the work of God and a promise to us. Assurance of salvation is a little bit different. Assurance of salvation, as we state in our doctrinal statement, is the subjective realization by a person that he or she is a child of God, is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to every obedient believer. And assurance of salvation requires self-examination. When we speak of assurance of salvation, we're not talking about the eternal truth that God maintains and holds and keeps. Assurance, the word means confidence. How are you? Where is your confidence in salvation? Your comfort, your feeling of that truth being real in you. Eternal security is a statement of the reality of what God has done. Assurance of salvation is the ongoing comfort to believers that that is not only true, but it is true for you. Assurance is your not just mental understanding, but the full affection of your heart taking comfort in the reality that not only has God secured all of his, but that you are his and are secure in that. So the, the chart, I think, is helpful just to kind of work through and to think about the difference between these two doctrines. Uh, eternal security, if you look at the chart in comparison, is a positional truth. Eternal security is a positional truth. It's the fact of your position in God. As His elect, that will never change. This is true. It is by the power of God that you are saved. Where assurance is a practical truth. Where it is a functional truth of the grace of God for you individually. It's the grace of God to give comfort that you not only know this is true, but you know it is true for you. The Father's ministry. Eternal security is the ministry of the Father planned before the beginning of time. Who would be His? That He would call them. That He would keep them. And it is Him who keeps them. Assurance of salvation is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is our comforter. He is our convictor. And His work keeps us through both comfort and conviction in the hope of salvation. Eternal security is true for all believers. There, are, there is no one who is a believer, a genuine true believer, who has placed their hope in Christ, 
who goes in and out of salvation. I'm saved, I'm not. I'm saved, I'm not. Because their salvation is not based on them, it's based on Him. It remains true. Assurance is for all obedient believers. When we are living in sin, though we might be secure in the hand of God, when we are living in sin, we don't have the same kind of security, the same kind of assurance. We don't have that comfort because the Spirit who comforts us also does what? Convicts us. And so as we are living in sin, and and at times ongoingly living in sin, there are times we doubt the truth for us. But it's the ministry of the Spirit that works in our hearts to affirm that. Eternal security is once and for all. Declared by God, the plan of God, and accomplished in Christ. Completed truth. The assurance of salvation for us individually is ongoing. As as we live throughout our life, the Spirit remains in us. The continued work of the Spirit in us is to assure that God is just. And He saves. And He has saved us individually. Eternal security is a fact. It is the finished work. It is the reality. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Assurance, in in one sense, is a feeling. When we talk about assurance, we're not talking about God's finished salvation. We're talking about your functioning in that salvation, where your heart is. Do you have a, as we'll see, Paul prays that you would have a heart of full assurance, full confidence in that. Or as we'll see coming up in 2 Peter, that you would be fruitful in the works of salvation, not blind, not nearsighted, not confused. So it deals with Not the fact alone that God is the only one who saves and holds us secure, but your individual feeling. Eternal security is a reality. Nothing will change this. Your feelings, your ideas, your understanding, the thoughts of man, the arguments of man, the fights of man, it is a clearly declared fact. Salvation is secure and held in the hand of God alone. Nothing will change it. It is reality. It is God's work. And as it is, it is based not on our works, but on His. And He is faithful, so it remains. Assurance of salvation is a realization. It's you coming to the realization that that is true in your heart. Of you understanding that. It is taking what is reality of what God does and bringing it to the realization for the comprehension of our own mind and our hearts, standing in full assurance, full confidence before Him. As a believer, we we need to understand these two doctrines. We need to understand the reality of eternal security. Because there is great comfort in that. And as Faith Bible, I I know you rejoice in that fact that your salvation is eternally secure in Christ. Salvation is not a matter of you're in and out, how you're doing today, how are things going for me today? Am I in Christ or not in Christ? Am I saved or not saved? Take great comfort in that fact, as we should. There is also great comfort in assurance in knowing that that can be true for us. 
in knowing not just that it's secure in God that he saves his own, but that we know we are his. And we live fruitfully in all things because of that. We rest in that. And as Christians, we're actually commanded to strive for that. And we are encouraged that that is possible. It is possible to live assured. Not all Christians have full assurance. Praise God, their salvation is not based on their assurance, based on His work. But Christian, it is the grace of God that you can be assured. Many false churches, such as the Roman Catholic Church, teach that there is no assurance of salvation. There is no way to know that you were saved. And they do so because it props up false doctrine of purgatory and other things. Uh, many faithful churches fail to recognize the reality of eternal security. And so they then don't believe in a doctrine of assurance that would declare God is comforting you in what is true. But they would believe assurances based on your momentary position. You're, you're fighting for God and wanting to be His and knowing that. And they feel that we cannot say that God eternally secures because if we were to say so, what would Christians do? The argument is they would live in all kinds of sin. They need the fear of salvation. But the reality is, if you are truly resting in the eternal security of Christ, you live in all kinds of comfort. All kinds of grace, all kinds of realization, all kinds of functional knowledge of who you are and what he's done despite you. There is no greater comfort than the truth of eternal security. Unfortunately, eternal security does not always equal in our minds that we are eternally secure. But it is the grace of God that it can by assurance. And my original intention for teaching this this morning was because I want us to deal well with that, knowing that we are eternally secure and knowing that God works mightily in his people. We can often be those in a reformed camp, maybe not FBC Menifee in general, but in a reformed camp, we become salvation hunters. We're after people all the time, and we often have conversations, and I often hear people say in the Reformed camp, well, I, you know, this person, but I'm not really sure if they're saved. I don't really know if they're saved. I don't really think they're saved. And they give a, a list of reasons. My original intention was to teach on assurance for that reason, because what we need to communicate is not our confusion whether they are eternally secure or not. That is reality. That is a hidden truth in God. What we need to communicate is our assurance in the way we say it. I'm not really sure. And my original intention was to say, how then do we deal with someone in that? But I, I think I could sum that up real quickly. You go to the Word of God with Him, and you in love, not judgment, not condemnation, because you know it is God who judges, in love, you communicate to them. You, you are saying you love Christ, but you are living contrary. You're saying that you love Christ, but you are openly pursuing sin. And this is, this is what I see in your life. This is what causes me confusion. This is why I don't have assurance of where you are with God. And I just want to encourage you. You can be assured. You don't have to live in this. And you trust the Holy Spirit works in them. 
You trust God with that. What shifted in my mind as I was studying over the last few months, looking at it, thinking about it, listening to other men preach on it, reading the Word of God, trying to organize my thoughts on what really can't be done in 55 minutes, is my greater concern is, is not for the whole world, because the whole world rests in the hands of God. If I was to have anxiety for the whole world, I would crush myself. My responsibility and my anxiety is, is for you, for the church that he has given us together. Our anxiety should rest not on the whole world, but on those whom we know God has called us to and given us. And so my greater concern became that I know we, as Christians, often lack assurance. We often live insecure, and we don't always communicate it. We don't always make it known. We're not always even aware that's what's going on in our heart. But our heart's condemning us and, and we become confused. And so my plan for this morning is briefly we are going to look at eternal security. And then we're going to walk through uh, praying that we have enough time. Six points of why you might doubt your assurance and the remedy for that. What might bring you to doubt your assurance and the remedy to pursue assurance in it? So, as we never have enough time, uh, let us move quickly. First, you are weak, but He is strong. The comfort of eternal security. If you notice, the handout today is three pages long. I was doing my best effort. It is always my goal to fit everything on one page. Uh, and there come times where it's impossible. One Christmas, I had a six-page handout because I felt bad for people who only show up for church on Christmas. So I felt like I had to give them six months of sermons to make them through till Easter. But this morning, as we're dealing with this topic, I, I wanted a handout that could be not just an outline for you this morning to follow and to take your own notes, but could be a resource for you to go back to, to look at as your heart struggles with assurance. And so the first page, I did not include the passage. So if you could turn in your Bible to Romans 8, 28 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Look at 28 through 39. In Romans 8, 28 through 39, we see salvation is a work of God alone. It is a work that God alone has accomplished. Starting at verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him give us graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. First, in God alone, the work of salvation is secure because God has predestined. He has called and He has glorified His saints. We see that in verse 29 through 30. It says that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. That means those who are summoned, who are brought to Him. And why are they summoned? We see in the following verses that those whom He predestined, those whom He has chosen, those whom He made known, He would call, He calls. Your calling is not about He summons and you respond. It is He calls because He predestined. And that's the exact order of the text. There's no question that your salvation is about your response to God. Yes, you must respond, but you respond because He saves. What a comfort. Two, because God accomplished salvation, nothing can stop it. Do you see that? Look at verse 31. Because he accomplished it, nothing can stop it. What shall we say then? If he is for us, who can be against us? He who gave his own son, will he not also give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? The answer is no one. Nothing can separate us. Not tribulation, difficulty in this life, distress, persecution from others, famine, nakedness, being without food, without shelter, without clothing, danger, or even sword which might kill you. Cannot separate it. He makes it even more clear again. He wants you to understand this comfort. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He covers all of the personal trials that might come about you and all of the powers of earth that might cause you to fear. He says none of these can separate you from the love of God. Because salvation is His work. And it is the gift of salvation through Christ that declares the seriousness of the promise. You think, with what seriousness does God make this promise? Well, He says He promises on Himself and that there is nothing greater than God. 
God does not lie, and He swears by Himself because there is nothing else to swear by. He is the one who rules all things. But it is not just in word, but also in deed that God has made clear His promise is secure. And He states that. He says, how should we know this? Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If Christ was willing to come and to die as a man, to be sacrificed, to pay the penalty of your eternal weight of sin, why then would He not secure that payment? He says it is the promise of the Gospel, the grace of God in that, that declares the seriousness that Christ has come. And so we see first that it is a work of God alone. If you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, we see also salvation is not by any work of man. Romans makes it very clear it is a work of God alone. Ephesians 2 makes it very clear that that work alone is a work alone. No help from man. Salvation is not secured. It's not comforted. It's not accomplished. It's not done by anything that you have done. Ephesians 2 makes that very clear. If you'll read with me, Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And now we see an amazing contrast at verse 4. It says, this is true of all humanity, but, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It encompasses and covers all of salvation, making it clear that this is the work of God, not you. Mankind is dead in sin. Mankind is following the course of the world. They're following Satan. And they are therefore by nature, by their mere existence in rebellion to God, children of wrath. They are children of wrath. They are waiting to have the wrath of God poured out on them. He continues to warn them. Romans 1 makes it very clear that the unrighteousness of man makes the wrath of God known. He says, for what can be known of God, His divine power, that He is eternal, and His divine nature, that He is holy and righteous, the Creator of all things, is known to man. 
and that weighs on them in their unrighteousness. They know the wrath of God is over them, but they deny it. They deceive themselves, and in judgment, he gives them over to that deception and allows them to live in what they want to live in. The course of the world, the pursuit of sin. But notice verse 2. One of the most important conjunctions of the Bible, the word but. But, in stark contrast, and notice the contrast, he says, in which you once walked, once, once was true of you. And what changed that? What makes that Paul's past tense for your life? He says, but because of God. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. God's character that He is rich in mercy, in love, and in grace. It is not rooted in your attractiveness. Mercy actually declares the exact opposite. Mercy is Him withholding what you deserve. It's not that God looks down and says, I could really use that guy. He would be great on my team. He says, that man has nothing to offer. He is a sinner in rebellion. And I will show him mercy. I will withhold the wrath he deserves. Rooted out of the character of God. His love. Nothing lovable in you, but his love. And that, therefore, is an act of grace, as verses 5-7 through says. It is a gift. It is a free gift based upon His desire, His love, His purposes given to you. And it is God's work in us. But God made us alive. Verse 5. It is not what we did, it's what He did. He made us alive. He raised us up and seated us. He changed our position. It is the gift He has given. He saved us and He recreated us or causes us to be born again in Christ. And He prepared the work that would be your sanctification. Your salvation from beginning to end is His work. And you might want to argue, yes, but in all that work, we have some part to play, Jake. We, we do some earning. Well, praise God. He makes very clear throughout the middle of every statement. As he says, he made us alive together. He pauses to say, when did he make you alive? When you started figuring things out, right? When you were like, you know what? I've been maturing lately and I need to be a better man. And then God went, there's my opportunity. I'm going to use that. No, it says he made you alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul pauses within the middle. He makes a parenthetical statement. He stops to go, I don't want you to be confused about this sentence. So when I say he made you alive, I want to stop to pause to tell you he did that when you were completely dead in trespass. You weren't doing okay, and he thought he'd help you out in that. He says, no, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 8 and 9 make it clear, we've done nothing. He says, for by grace you have been saved, which should be enough, right? Just the statement, for by grace. Grace is a gift. It is something completely given to you. It should be enough to say you had nothing to do with this. But again, Paul knows your deceitful heart. He's going to say, I know why God gave me that gift. 
I'd give me a gift too. I was walking by the mirror the other day and I was like, that man deserves a gift. <laughs> no, friend. No, he pauses to make sure you're not confused by the mirror. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And then he makes clear why you must know that, why you have done nothing. Because you might say, yes, but God, he looked down the corridor of time and he saw what I would accomplish for his kingdom. He knew that I was so weak that he would make me so strong. He knew that I was so far from him that I could get so close to him. He did this so that I could just be, mm, look at, look what I do. No, he says, why did he do this? So that no man could boast. He completely did it in and of himself because there is no glory deserved to man who was created to glorify God and lives in rebellion against him. There's no glory deserved there. The glory you were created for was to boast of him. And any boasting of yourself is just a fruit of that initial rebellion. And so he makes clear, it is a work of him, not a result of works. Not that he saw what you could accomplish so that no one would boast. Salvation is a work of God alone, and it is not a work of man at all. And so therefore, it is kept by him alone. Christian, what great comfort to know, because you might think, it makes me so insignificant. It's like I'm just a little speck of nothing on a massive universe. Yes. Yes, you are. You are a little speck of nothing on a massive universe. And the God who made all things has loved that speck in such a way that he makes clear your value, your dignity, your hope, who you are, your only chance and hope rests in him who holds the power over all things. Your security is not in you, speck. It's in the God who made everything. What comfort. What kindness that he would do so when we know we're a little speck. What, what do you do to little specks that rebel? You blot them out, right? I know some of you, you live in a Buddhist frame of mind that all creation exists equal to man. And, and you think we're all created equal, right? Cockroaches are people too. Um, that's a confusing sentence. But when I see a cockroach in my house, I go, this is a result of sin. If dominion was right, this cockroach wouldn't be here. He'd be in his little cockroach house. But because of sin, the world's in disorder. And so now I must clarify God's authority. <laughs> Done. Over. Right? God didn't do that. He didn't look down at creation and go, Adam and Eve. Screwed it up. It's only two of them. Let's blot it out. No. In grace and compassion and kindness, He loves. He calls us. He saves us despite our rebellion. And I know in your heart, there's all kinds of struggles with the problem of evil and the weight of that. And you just have to rest in the reality of what Scripture says. You are responsible to run to Him. You are responsible to respond to Him. You are responsible to recognize these truths which are clear in Scripture. 
And he is the one that's done it all. John Calvin says it this way. You then see that we are wholly excluded from the righteousness of works and must therefore flee to Christ for righteousness. For in us there can be none. And to know this is especially necessary. For we shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, except we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of our own. This is an essential truth of the gospel. And because God saves alone, eternal security is the result of his faithfulness, not yours. You don't have to turn to these. I'm just going to run through them. We see this declared in John 5, 24. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Whoever hears and believes, what do we know of them from Romans? They were predestined and they've been called. They've been summoned. They heard and they believed. They depended. They trusted. John 10, 27 through 30. Verse 28, after he says, my sheep hear my voice, he says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now, there are many that want to hold on to their own righteousness and they say, well, no one can snatch you out of the father's hand, but you can jump out. And I think, what foolishness. When Jesus says no one can take you out of his hand, does he mean a parenthetical statement that but you can get out if you want to? No. No, friend. He's being very clear that his hand is not penetrable. The Lord's arm is not shortened. There is never, when he puts his grip on something, it is what it is. John 6, 37 all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. The glory belongs to him. And I want you to notice here, who keeps you from stumbling? Who keeps you in his presence? It says he is able to keep you from stumbling. And how does he do so? This is the part I think we often miss. How does he do so, Christian? How does he keep you from stumbling? It's an open book test. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 24. Keep you from stumbling to present you blameless before the presence of all his glory with great joy. He rejoices to keep you from stumbling. He rejoices to keep you in his presence. He rejoices to make you holy and blameless as you will be one day before him. He does so with great joy. He also does so with great clarity. As John Calvin said, there is no righteousness from Christ except that we first know assuredly we have no righteousness of our own. 
no righteousness in which we will bring him. And your question might be, what would it look like for someone to have righteousness of their own, righteousness before Christ? Well, there's a terrifying passage which demands our understanding of assurance. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is the definition of these people? One, God never knew them. They, they are not those who are called. They are not his to depart from me. That they, because they are unknown, they are to depart from him. What, what does that departure mean? It means they will be cast into hell. And what characterizes them? You workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. You who live in rebellion to the law and commands of God. Look how he describes those who are his. Not self-righteous, he says, but the one who does the will of my Father. Not the one who makes this known within their own will, the one who does the will of the Father, the one who hears what the Father has commanded. He hears the summoning call and he lives in the will of the Father. The first will of the Father being that you completely humble yourself and bow before Christ. That there is salvation in Christ alone. That is the will of the Father, that there is salvation with no boasting. It is completely of Him. Notice they come to Him with the right words. They say to me, Lord, Lord. They have the right words. They have the wrong works. What are their statements of works? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, and do many mighty works in Your name? They say, do you not recognize the things we accomplished in Your name? Do you not recognize what I have done? Do you not owe me this? And what is Jesus' statement? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That they would remain assuming that they are saved because what they've done is denying the initial tenet of salvation. You can do nothing to be saved. You must proclaim your dependence upon Him. And that is a supernatural work of God. What causes a human heart to say, I can do nothing in and of myself. I have no righteousness of my own. A supernatural work of God. Titus 3 tells us that. What are we to do when we are telling others and believers to submit to government, to go to authority and to trust God in that? He says, but we know that we were once like them, but God by grace has regenerated us through the power of the Spirit that we would put our obedience to Him, that we would depend on Him. Christian, I think these words might often strike terror in you 
for a few reasons, and that's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning. At what points do these words, Matthew 7, that there will be many who say, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. That's, that's the scariest verse of Scripture. At what points in your life do you live in that fear that this might be me? Okay, so six, six reasons. With a small preface, because I can't do anything without a small preface. Number one, you can have confidence. See, look on page two. You can have confidence in assurance. You can know today, right, with confidence, I have hope in Christ. But then in a week from now, in a few days from now, in a month from now, in a year from now, when you don't have that confidence, you can have that confidence again. You can pursue that. You can have assurance. And that is because it is a work of God. It's not based on you. He will actually affirm for you and bring you to that assurance. But he has not left you in the dark about that. His desire is for you to be assured. We see in the book of 1 John, which is, is really... In many ways, a test of assurance. It's a declaration of the righteousness of God and reality of regeneration and heart change and obedience to Him and a holding fast to Him and who Christ is and resting in all of that in 1 John. We see that declared there. And John even gives us that that is his purpose. First, he says in John 1, he is writing for a purpose that you might have fellowship with God, that you might know the Father, that Him who which He has seen, Jesus might dwell not only in the apostles who have seen him, but in you also, and that his joy is made complete through that. He wants you to have fellowship with the Father. And then we see at the end of the book, John gives another purpose. He says in verse 13 of chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So who is he writing to? Believers. He said, I, write, I am writing to you believers, you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to those who already believe. Why? That they might have confidence in their eternal security. That they would be assured. That you could know. And so, therefore, we examine. We, we believe Him. We trust Him. He says, if these things by John are written that we would know the truth, we want to look at John Examine our lives, lay them before him and say, what does it look like to know the truth? And because you believe God, you strive to live in that. Because your hope is in him, you live for that. And John says that again and again. He says, those who love me, obey my commandments. And he talks about who Christ is. He talks about love of neighbor. He talks about a pursuit of holiness and righteousness. He says, those who are His, those who believe in Him, what do they do? They obey His commandments. Well, if you hear that just as a broad statement, you are interpreting that through your own mind and not through John. You need to examine yourself, and you need to examine yourself according to Scripture. That's the encouragement of 2 Corinthians 13.5. As Paul is writing to in many ways, rebuke the Corinthians because they're denying the apostleship of Christ. By doing so, they're denying the truth of what Christ has said. They're profaning and slandering and uh, casting doubt on who Paul is. 
And Paul is compelling them and striving for them to understand the truth, to put their faith in Christ. And in verse 5 of chapter 13, he says to them, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, right? He says, examine yourselves, look at your life. Test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Similar to Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? Doesn't that sound like a terrifying, what is he saying? He's saying, see if you can make this happen? See if you will be saved? Is he saying that salvation is a test of works and that I have to test myself to see if I'm good enough to be saved? Isn't that what we just spent the first 20 minutes of the sermon saying is not true? Yes, it is, and it remains not true. Don't panic. Look at 2 Corinthians 13. Why does he say test yourself? Or do you not realize this about yourself? What don't you realize? He says, test yourself that Jesus Christ is in you. Do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Same with Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Christian, why do you examine yourself? Why do you put yourself to the test? Why do you wrestle through this? Because you know that salvation is the work of God, not you. The test is not you standing before God trying to prove I'm good enough. It is you living under the commands of God, allowing him to declare, I accomplished this. He says, test yourself. Why? Because if you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear with the testing. You have nothing to fear in examination because you are not examining yourself to see if you are worthy of salvation. You already know you're not. You're saved because of Christ. So examine yourself. Lay yourself bare before Scripture. Rest in the kind of humility John Calvin talks about. Bring nothing to God and see what He does. Because He is faithful. The test is not testing you. The test is an assertion, a communication, an assurance to you of him. And are those who might live in the test and find that they are not saved? Yes, but they won't care. Unbelievers do not care that they are not saved. And fake Christians do not care that they have not been saved completely by Christ. What they care is to speak of their own righteousness, to declare their own faithfulness. The same as they will do to Christ, they do on earth. They justify themselves by, I'm not that bad, I haven't done that bad of things, I'm still a good guy. I'm still a great lady. I'm not like those people. The Christian knows they're exactly like those people in complete dependence on Christ. The test, Christian, is not to see if you are saved. The test, as you are his, is for him to display to you, you are. And how do you go about the testing? You listen to him. You hear his commands. That is why throughout John it says, those who love me live my commands. Okay, so here's the first problem. Here's the first place we come to. One reason that we struggle with assurance is clear preaching brings clear conviction and insecure, insecurity of our own faithfulness. 
Clear preaching brings clear conviction and insecurity in our own faithfulness. Because as I say those things out loud, I say, you trust him, you live in his commands, you pursue it because he is faithful. What you hear is I have to do this or I'm not faithful. I have to do this or I'm not his. No, Christian. The statement of clear preaching is you can do this because you are his. You can live in this because he died for you. He who commanded is he who enables. So you hear, and when your heart is convicted, you don't dwell on your own insecurity, your own unfaithfulness. You live faithful. You trust him. (coughs) So what do you hear when you hear clear preaching? Well, conviction over sin confirms our confession. It is about the faithfulness and the righteousness of Christ. Conviction in your sin confirms your confession. In a church where preaching is not clear and every Sunday is five steps to start your own business or how to get along with your neighbor or how to influence people or how to feel better about yourself, nobody ever questions their faithfulness. They just think, I just need a little bit of help. Christian, when you hear the true preaching of the gospel of Christ, you will question your faithfulness all the time. Because that's where you live, dependent upon his faithfulness. Do not let conviction fail in its work. Conviction is to draw you to dwell on his faithfulness, his righteousness. Let me show you from the text. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. The the pretext of this, 1 John 1, 5-7, it says, walking in the light of Christ and fellowship with him, the saints will have their sin revealed. It says, if you walk in darkness, if you say you walk in the light while you walk in darkness, you are not of the truth. If you are living in sin and you're saying, I'm living for Christ, you're a liar, right? If you're going on in sin and saying again and again, I, many times in life, unfortunately, I've, I've heard men say such things I, uh, just last year. But an old friend who's divorcing his wife, who's committing sin, who's living in sin, who is slandering her and profusely saying rude things, unkind things and lies about her name. And she's doing the same. And they both throughout it all say, I love Christ. And he said to us, I've never felt so close to God. And I said, please repent. You are putting yourself in a dangerous place. If you are living in sin and your heart is assuring you God is mine, you are either grieving the Holy Spirit or you don't have Him. Because a Christian living in direct rebellion against God never feels like, I'm okay, this is fine. In the last few years, I've been walked with many other believers who are living in sin and dwelling in it and moving on. And they say, Jake, I'm miserable. I don't want to live like this. I know all that's true. I just don't care right now. I'm just living it. What can they not do? They can't deny the truth. 
They know the truth. And they start playing games then to say, well, maybe I'm not called then. Maybe I'm not elect then. Maybe I'm not. I say, no, friend, you're in rebellion. And he is kind to you to say, run to him. Run to him. Of course you're not comfortable where you are. Of course the truth is eating you up. That is Hebrews 12, that the discipline of God brings us grief that would draw us to repentance. It's the work of the Spirit, conviction. Those are dramatic times of that, when they're walking in darkness. But Christian, as you walk in the light, what's going to happen? The light's going to reveal dark things in you, right? If you're going to live in the will of God, the first thing you need to understand is that the will of God is not for you to be fully free from the sin of earth right now. You are completely free from the penalty of sin. You are completely free from the power of sin. It has no hold on you, no weight on you. You are held in the hands of God. But you are not freed from the presence of sin. And so sin often shows its dark and ugly head. And you can see it because you're in the light. So what do you do as you walk in the light? What do you do as sermons convict you, as the Word of God convicts you, as your own preparation in preaching convicts you? What do you do? He has been very clear. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Walking in the light of Christ will bring about the reality of sin. And if you live saying you have no sin, you live in self-deception. If you say that there is no sin in my life, there is nothing for me to repent of, there's no need to pursue Christ in this, no need to pursue sanctification, it never shows its ugly head. He says you are a liar. And what do you do? When you see sin, you do not deny it. You do not say, I have no sin. You confess your sin. And confession expresses our agreement to the truth. We are forgiven because His faithfulness, not ours. Hear me rightly on this. Repentance and confession is not a work that saves you. It is not a work that cleanses you. It is not a work that accomplishes anything by you. It gives you great comfort. It it gives you great clarity because you recognize who you are. Confession expresses our agreement to the truth. Confessing to God does not cleanse you of your sin. It is you agreeing with God that only Christ has cleansed of sin. The world might feel better through confession. The world is willing to confess all kinds of things to free themselves of accountability now. But Christian, when you confess, it's not to free yourself from sin. It's to agree to the truth of God. Look at the verse. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The statement is written in such a way that it is not a, if you do this, He will do this. It says, if you do this, He is this. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. It's not, if you confess your sin, He will be faithful and just. Confession is not 
the factor of cleansing or forgiveness. Confession is the natural function of a Christian. When they see sin in their life, they agree with God and they say, I have sin in my life. I'm completely dependent upon Christ. This doesn't own me. He does. When you see sin in your life, you confess your sin and he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why? Because of his faithfulness and his justice already accomplished in the gospel. If our assurance was in our righteousness, then we call him a liar. Last one. If your assurance is in your righteousness, you are calling him a liar. If you meet your sin and you see your sin and you try to backpedal why I did not sin, why I have not sinned, why I don't live in sin, if you retreat from that and and you say, look, I sinned, but we don't need to talk about it. It's not like everybody doesn't sin and it's not like I did everything wrong. No, Christian. If you retreat from your sin and you say, no, I I have not sinned. I I don't. Yes, I need God's grace in these areas, but I've, I've been doing it right here. When you have sinned, you're calling him a liar. Because he has said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That no man may boast that it is no work by us that we are completely dependent upon Him. See, the greater danger here is not the Christian who doubts their assurance because they feel conviction. The great danger, the the Matthew 7 person is the one who hears the conviction and goes, that's all right, I don't need these people. It's the one who says, that's fine. All they want to talk about is sin. I just want to do what I want to do. I want to live the life I want to live. I'll square up with God when I get there. Repent. Repent. Flee from your sin. Run to God. Confess your sin. Let the words when you get there be my good and faithful servant. The one who heard his words and said, yes, he is right. He is true. He is righteous. Praise God, He forgives. Praise God, He has grace. Praise God, He shows mercy. Praise God, He is just, and I'm not. As is our norm, I rejoice for the day we get a building for one reason. There's no time limit when you own a building. I'll just be like, we got one service, guys. No second service is starting. We're going to do this for two hours today. It's our building. We could be at home. Some of you are like, And I'll pray for you, but I'll pray for you now because we do have this building. And next week, we will look at five more reasons that you might lack assurance. And you could study and look at those this week, and we'll come back to reflect over them next week.